You're listening to a sermon from LifeGate Church of Seguin, Texas. This sermon was preached by Joshua Jordan, who serves as the lead pastor at LifeGate Church. Find out more about us at www.lifegateseguin.com. I invite you to make your way to the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10. Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 24. If you're a guest with us, we are making our way through the Gospel of Luke in a series entitled, From the Manger to the Throne. And we're going to be in the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10. In a moment, we're going to look at verses 1 through 24. In his excellent book, On the Four Gospels, author and Bible scholar O. Palmer Robertson makes the following observations about the Gospel of Luke. He writes, and I quote, Luke's personal application of the term Lord in reference to Jesus is quite distinct. Now, let me stop there. Here's what he means. Often when the Gospel writers put down the word Lord, they they are just simply saying, stating what other people called him. But what he's saying is, Luke often uses the term Lord on his own. It's his own personal application. He's calling Jesus Lord. He's not just quoting someone else calling Jesus Lord. And he says, that's quite distinct. Now, why does he make that observation? He says, in Mark's gospel, the author employs the term Lord 16 times. If you were to go through Luke's gospel 16 16 times, Mark quotes people calling Jesus Lord, but Mark never applies that term to Jesus on his own. Other people call him that, but he never just addresses Jesus as Lord. Matthew, in his gospel, uses the term Lord 80 times. But Matthew himself as an author never applies the term to Jesus. Luke, on the other hand, in significant contrast, applies the term Lord to Jesus 14 times. So many times which Luke just is addressing Jesus on his own, calls him Lord. Now why do I make mention of this particular title in which Luke seems to be using in a very personal way? Way I believe that Luke used this title, Lord, not only to communicate how he saw Jesus, but how he wanted all of his readers to see and to know Jesus. That Jesus is the Lord, and that knowing Jesus as Lord is an essential part of being his disciple. It's not just a title we throw around. Knowing Jesus is Lord is is essential to knowing Him and being His disciple. And in our text today, we're going to reflect on this title, Lord. Lord as it refers to Jesus. And we're going to think about what does it mean that Jesus is Lord and why does it matter? What does it mean and why does it matter? In order to answer those two questions, I want to break up the text into two sections. And here's our first point for this morning. Verses 1 through 16, we're going to see the commissioned, commissioned by the sovereign Lord. That, that title kind of describes these first 16 verses. Commissioned by the sovereign Lord. And I want to read the first 16 verses. And I want to invite you to follow along as I read God's holy, inspired, 
an authoritative word. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me, rejects him who sent me. Now look again in verse 1. In verse 1 here of chapter 10, we have one of these 14 examples that, that, that this Bible scholar O. Palmer Robertson was drawing attention to. This is one of the 14 places in which Jesus is called Lord by Luke himself. He's not just saying that's what other people call him. He is addressing Jesus as Lord. And as Lord, Jesus had authority to commission people to carry out His mission. And in this case... Jesus calls 72 disciples to be a part of a spiritual harvest, a harvest that, according to Jesus, is ready to take place in Israel and beyond. And notice the first thing Jesus calls these 72 disciples who He's commissioning, what He calls them to do. First thing He tells them to do, verse 2, is to pray to the Lord of the harvest, that the Lord of the harvest would send out more laborers into the field because... The harvest is plentiful. Notice he didn't say, pray for the harvest, that there would be more harvest. Jesus says the harvest is plentiful. That's not the problem. Pray that there would be more laborers to join in with the work. Now think about the implications of what Jesus just said here in verse 2. By calling them to pray to the Lord of the harvest. Let me read verse 2 again. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. 
Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Think about what Jesus just said here. Not only does Jesus demonstrate his foreknowledge to know the size of the harvest, don't let that go right past you. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful. You want to say, well, how do you know that? Jesus not only has the foreknowledge to know the size of the harvest, but if we really understand what Jesus just said, He has the ability as the Lord to send out more workers. Where where do we see that here in the passage? Notice what Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest. What did Luke just call Jesus in verse 1? The Lord. And guess what? As we will see in a minute, when we come to verses 17 and 24, when all the 72 come back, you know what the first words out of their mouth is? Lord. So when Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest, He is not just speaking of God the Father. Jesus is the Lord Himself. He is equal with God the Father. And it's clear, it's clear that Luke is trying to communicate something about Jesus in this passage. And if we see what he's communicating, I think there's many implications. Luke is trying to communicate to us that Jesus is the sovereign Lord of the harvest. He's the sovereign Lord of the harvest, which means here's how we must view Jesus. We must not view Jesus as a passive participant on his way to the cross. As of last week, we heard In verse 51, Jesus has now set His face to go to Jerusalem and He's going there to die. But we must not just think that that's now all that's going to happen from this point forward. Jesus is just on His way to the cross. He's going to fulfill the Father's will, but He is just a passive participant. No, Jesus was actively and powerfully making things happen on His way to Jerusalem. He's not just on His way to Jerusalem, just obeying the Father's will and just letting things go. Jesus is actively making things happen on His way to the cross. And we discover that Jesus is not the only one who is demonstrating authority on the way to the cross. Not only is Jesus showing His authority, but He then grants these messengers, not only the twelve, but these seventy-two, He grants them a degree of authority as representatives of His kingdom. Now, make no mistake, just because Jesus gives these seventy-two a degree of authority doesn't mean things will be easy for them. Notice the first words Jesus tells them after calling them to pray. He tells them, go, but behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Then he tells them, don't take a lot of provisions. You're going to have to trust I'm going to provide and I'm going to protect you. But you're not going into a place where you may be well received in the rest of the text. Jesus gives them instructions on what to do if if a town rejects and what to do if a house rejects. The expectation is everyone's not going to be thrilled that you're there. But you go. See, Jesus granted these 72 authority as His trusted representatives. Look look at verse 6. And think about... What Jesus says to His disciples as He sends them out, or these 72 as He sends them out, the, the, the kind of authority He's given them. He said, if a son of peace is there, 
your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. As if they are the givers of peace. Do you, do you see Jesus as the giver of peace? But it almost makes Jesus and these 72 with solidarity. That if you go in my name and you grant peace, there will be peace. And if they say you can keep your peace, that peace returns to you. You see the kind of authority they're given. Or think about verse 9. He tells them, heal the sick in, in that town and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now think about that. Jesus doesn't just say to the 72, go heal the sick. When you do, tell them the reason is that the kingdom of God is near. Well, Jesus is the king. And he's not with them. And yet he's telling them that when you do this, not only am I giving you the authority to heal, I'm giving you the authority to say to these people that you represent me in such a way that when you heal them, you say to them, the kingdom is here. That's crazy. Only Jesus has been uttering those words. And then John the Baptist before him. And now they're saying, Jesus is telling them, you say the same. Look, look in at, at verses 10 through 12. If they go into a city and that city rejects them, he says that they are to, to even, he said, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, you're to wipe off against them. And then here's what you're to tell them that the kingdom of God has come near. So if they reject you, they, you, you are to say, I'm wiping off the dust of this town off my feet. And here's why I'm doing it. Because the kingdom, it's as if Jesus was here himself and you rejected him. And we can say, Josh, is that, is that reading too much into it? No, because of verse 16. Think about this. Jesus says, the one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you, rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Now, what's going on here in these 16 verses? Well, when I read Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, I'm convinced that Luke is giving us a glimpse of what will take place once Jesus has departed. We know he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's already said, I'm, I'm soon to depart. I'm going to have an, my exodus. I think Luke is giving us a glimpse of what it's going to be like once Jesus departs. Think about this. Even though Jesus is not with the 72, they still operate in light of His authority. So they're not, Jesus is not with them. He's not physically in that town. And yet, they are operating as if Jesus was there. How can that be? How can it be that they can operate as if Jesus was there, but He's physically not present? Well, first of all, His authority is universal. And, this is important, His authority is not limited to His personhood. See, Jesus is not just a man. He is God. And if God is omnipresent, and Jesus didn't give up His godness when He became a man, He doesn't have to be physically present for them to have His authority. And that's what's going on here, I think, in Luke chapter 10, verses 1 through 16, is we're getting a glimpse of what will take place once Jesus has departed. And in his sequel to the Gospel of Luke, which is the book of Acts, Luke continues 
to show us how, how Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is the risen, reigning Lord, the book of Acts tells us that He's still active in the world today. He's still active and He has authority and that, that, that authority has been given to His church to be His delegates to carry out His kingdom purposes. Let me give you some, some examples from the book of Acts. I invite you to turn there. Because I think what Luke is doing here in chapter 10 is a foreshadowing of the book of, of Acts. That Jesus, Jesus is at this point in the book of Acts has died, has been raised, has ascended, and yet notice the way Luke still speaks of Jesus. He is still alive. He is still active in the world, though He is absent from the earth. Luke chapter 2. At the end of Peter's Pentecost message, he says this in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Peter ends his sermon on the day of Pentecost by saying, here's what you need to know. Here's the summary. Israel, this man, Jesus, whom you crucified, He is the Lord. And then we're told that the people respond, and Peter says this in verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Did you hear what Luke just said or showed us? Peter just said on the day of Pentecost, guess who Jesus is? He's the Lord. And then when everybody responds, do you know what Luke then tells, or Peter then tells the people? You're responding because the Lord Jesus is drawing people to Himself. And we see that again at the end of verse 2. After we get a, a, a kind of a summary of what this early church looked like after the day of Pentecost when 3,000 souls were added to the church, they began to meet, they began to be together, pray together, and then we're told in verse, at the end of verse 47, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Well, if Jesus is Lord, guess who's adding to the church? He is. See, Jesus, the picture here is not just that Jesus died. That was His big work. He rose, which showed that His work was was accomplished and that it was pleasing to the Lord. And now He's just up in heaven waiting to return. No, Jesus doesn't just save people by dying on the cross. He's the one saving people. Why were 3,000 people added and can people continue to be added? Luke tells us because the Lord added to the church those who were being saved. Or think about how, how Luke pictures what happened on the, on the road to Damascus? If you remember in, in Luke and Acts chapter 9, we hear about this man named Saul who hates the church. He's persecuting these people who follow the way. And he's on his way to arrest more, to kill more, to, to do them harm. And we're told at the end of verse 3 that a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, 
Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now think about that. Two implications. First of all, did you hear the solidarity between God's people and Jesus? That as this man named Saul persecutes these people called the way, that Jesus stops Saul on this road, on his way to kill more Christians, and says, why are you persecuting me? And you want to say, Jesus, you, you've already been crucified, buried, and you've been sent. How, how are they persecuting you? And the solidarity is there that we see in Luke chapter 10. If you reject them, you reject me. You persecute them, you persecute me. And then notice this. Here's the second thing we see that. Look, look what's happening. This isn't just the Spirit of God who's been poured out talking. Jesus Himself, the risen reigning Lord, addressed Paul and Paul calls Him Lord. So here we have another picture again that Jesus, though He is not physically present on earth, is still active and working among His people. Or think about what happened in Antioch in chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, beginning in verse 9 or 19, we hear about this wonderful church called the church in Antioch. And Luke gives us these details beginning in verse 19. He says, And those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some men of Cyprus and Cyrene who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them and a great number who believe turned to the Lord. Did you hear that? These people in Antioch begin to preach to others that Jesus is Lord. And in verse 21, we're told upon hearing that many of them turned to the Lord. And why? Because the hand of the Lord was with them. Jesus wasn't just the message that was being proclaimed. Jesus was actively saving. He, he was actively adding to the church. He was at work. Why did these people hear about Jesus as Lord? Because the power of the Lord, that's what it means, the hand of the Lord was with them. So that when they preached, they weren't just talking about some Jesus who was still sitting in heaven. Jesus Himself was at work. I think about the story of Lydia in chapter 16. This is my last example here. Lydia. Luke tells us about this woman beginning in verse 14. He says, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here in this city, as, as the gospel is being proclaimed, this woman, Lydia, comes to saving faith. And you know what Luke tells us why she did? Because the Lord Himself opened her heart. See, Jesus isn't just the one who's being talked about. Jesus is 
actively at work. See, the book of Acts demonstrates that Jesus continues to be the Lord of the harvest even after His ascension. He's not just the message of the mission. He is the chief missionary. And all the work that His people do, and that His church do, that every Christian do, does, we're doing it. And as we go and we do it, the risen reigning Lord is working through us. He is the Lord of the harvest. And if this is true, then listen, every Christian and every church must be convinced that Jesus is Lord of the harvest. This is, this is something every Christian must believe. That Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And every church, if, if we're going to fulfill our mission, we must be convinced that Jesus is Lord of the harvest. Because see, when we have a complete confidence in the sovereign work of Christ, it compels us to boldly carry out the mission. When we know that Jesus isn't just one we're proclaiming, but Jesus is alive, Working, active, moving, opening people's eyes, opening people's hearts, adding to, to the church those who are being saved. Doesn't that give us confidence to go and do the mission? Jesus doesn't say, okay, I'm, I'm going to be up in heaven if you need me. Good luck. Hope you can convince people of their need for a Savior. Maybe somebody will come along with a book or a great way to share you know, evangelism so that you can be the most compelling and the most winsome. No, when you go and you speak, the risen reigning Lord will be at work. I'm the Lord of the harvest and I will, I will work through you to carry out my kingdom work. Now, so much more could be said here, but there's a whole other half of a text. So we need to move on to verses 17 through 24. And here we're celebrating the sovereign grace of the Lord. Look at verses 17 through 24. So as the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Then turning to the disciples, He said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see 
and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. After being commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and after being scattered about to carry out this mission in groups of two, we're told here in verse 17 that the disciples join together and when they join together, notice what they do, they rejoice in the Lord for what He has done through them. They, they rejoice together. Now what's happening in this section of Luke's Gospel or in, in, in this section of, of chapter 10? In many ways, I think this, this passage that we're looking at this morning, 1 through 24, it reflects the weekly rhythm of the congregation. Think about what we see here in these verses. It, it really does reflect the weekly rhythm of the congregation. As, as these people were sent out, they come back together, and as they come back together, they rejoice in all that God has done. And that's what we do each and every week. We gather together and we rejoice. We gather and we're scattered. And we carry out mission. And guess what we do? We come back together and we gather and we rejoice. And then we scatter and we carry out the mission. That is the weekly rhythm of God's people. And whether we gather or we scatter, our attention must be constantly drawn to the sovereign grace of God. That, that's, that's exactly what Jesus does here in these verses. We're told in verse 17, the 72 returned with joy. They're, 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 they're elated and they say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Can you imagine being one of these 72? They've seen the 12 do things. But Jesus all of a sudden calls these 72 and says, I'm going to send you out with my authority. You're to go, you're to preach peace, you're to heal. And while they're out, they realize, men, even demons are subject to us. And they're like, Jesus, this is amazing. We get to be a part of your work. This is unbelievable that, that as we encountered people who were in bondage, that we were able to free them and demons listened to us and they obeyed us just as they obeyed you simply because we're your people. We, we can't believe it. And listen to what Jesus says to them in verse 18. I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Now what's going on there? As they're rejoicing in, in seeing people liberated from, the, from, from satanic oppression, from demons, guess what Jesus is saying? Oh, you only know the half of it. Here's what was really happening. As, as you were delivering people, Jesus says, I saw something you couldn't see. It's as if Satan was being defeated. As you were doing my work, it was like Satan falling from heaven like lightning. Now, he hasn't been completely defeated until the cross. But in that moment, Jesus was like, hey guys, you only think this was exciting. You didn't have the cosmic view I did. That Satan was being dethroned as you were doing this work in my name. And yet... That's not what should stir your joy, guys. They come saying, Jesus, we can't believe it. And Jesus says, oh, you only know the half of it. And yet, and yet, this is not what should stir your joy. Verses 19 and 20. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Think about that for just a moment. Jesus informed these 72 missionaries who were excited about the work they got to take part in. He informed them that even though they had been granted immense privileges and power, it doesn't compare to the privilege of being saved. They come back saying, Jesus, we just can't believe you would grant us such a privilege and a power. We saw people healed. We saw people delivered. And Jesus says, that's nothing compared to the privilege of being saved. You want to get excited? Get excited about that. That's the most exciting thing imaginable. See, what was more amazing than their authority to to trample evil and in turn to take part in casting Satan from heaven was the fact that their name was written in the registry of heaven. Jesus was saying that is far more significant. And Jesus encouraged the 72 to rejoice. Oh, rejoice, guys. You had the right posture when you showed back up rejoicing. But I want to redirect what you're rejoicing in. I want to I fix your gaze on something far greater. And, and what happens next in verse 22, I think highlights this point. Notice what Luke tells us then happened in that very same hour. Not only, not only did they rejoice, but we're told Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. Now, before we reflect on what Jesus said, let me draw our attention to what Jesus did. Did you see what Jesus just did? He rejoiced. Not only did did these 72 rejoice, But somewhere in that same hour in which they return and he hears all those reports, Jesus takes a moment to say, oh, this is good. I just got to rejoice in this. And he begins to rejoice. And in verse 21, we're told that Jesus being led by the Holy Spirit expressed gratitude to God the Father for both concealing and revealing himself to others. All of a sudden, Jesus just breaks out in a moment of praise and He says, God, it is a good thing. Your will is a good thing that for some you have concealed yourself and to others you've revealed yourself. Now think carefully about the response of Jesus in verse 21. Think about what Jesus is doing. Jesus delighted in God's will. Jesus delighted in God's will and His will was that the good news of the gospel that it be revealed to the least and to the lowly, and that it be concealed to those who are viewed as most perceptive and knowledgeable. Jesus just says, oh, and the reason there, there are people who are seeing you that no one would have ever thought would come to you 
It's because you are showing yourself to them. And those who would, in their pride, think they would know you best, you have hidden yourself from them seeing you and knowing you. And look at verse 22. Because in verse 22, we, we discover that what's true of God the Father is also true of Jesus. They're, they're equal. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Think about what Jesus just communicated to us about His Lordship and about the spiritual harvest. Those who come to saving faith are recipients of sovereign grace. See, Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And those who come to saving faith, it's because God the Father and Jesus has shown Himself to them. Now, why would God design things this way? Because it's obviously a part of God's design. Jesus said, this was according to your gracious will. This was according to your good will. Why? Why would God design it this way? So that we cannot boast in our salvation. So that none of us can boast in our salvation. See, we didn't come to Christ because we came to our senses. We didn't come to Christ because we wised up. We didn't come to Christ because all of a sudden one day we chose to follow Jesus on our own. Listen, if you grew up in a Christian home, whether you're younger or you're older, if you grew up in a Christian home, I want you to know how, how privileged you are. And you should, you should see that as a real blessing. But just because you grew up in a Christian home and you are a Christian, you are not a Christian because you grew up in a Christian home. There are plenty of people who grew up in Christian homes who still do not know the Lord and who have rejected the Lord. The the Christian home is God's mean, was God's means, just like a stranger walking up to someone and telling them about Jesus and they get saved. That was a means. But guess what? Even if you grew up in a Christian home and have only heard about Jesus from the time you were wee little, guess what? You are still a recipient of sovereign grace. There is no one who can boast that they came to Jesus on their own. If you and I are saved, it's because Jesus displayed His sovereign grace to us so that we could come to know Him and have life in Him for eternity. And listen, no matter how much, or no matter how we came to saving faith in Christ, if we belong to Christ, we are the most blessed people on the planet. Isn't that what Jesus just said to his disciples in verse 23 and 24? Turning to him, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Jesus all of a sudden says, guys, you realize how privileged you are? You realize how blessed you are? That you get to see what others have never been able to see. LifeGate, because you and I, if we belong to Christ, are so richly blessed, we should celebrate the sovereign grace of the Lord when we come together. 
That, that, that must be what we do when we come together. In song, in testimony, in everything we do, we, we must rejoice in the grace of God. We must rejoice in the fact that we are citizens of heaven instead of hell-bound sinners. And the reason we are not hell-bound sinners is all because of grace. And when we come together, we ought to sing about it. We ought to shout about it. We ought to get excited about it. And God help us that we ever, ever, ever stop being amazed. We ought to rejoice in the fact that Jesus saved us. See, nothing should inspire more joy and thanksgiving and passionate worship to God than the fact that the Lord saved us, not because of anything we did to deserve it. That ought to do something. It ought to produce joy and thanksgiving and passionate worship. That's what ought to happen. So let me, let me, let me encourage you, in light of this text, to do something I think would benefit us all. We should regularly reflect on the sovereign grace of God. We should ref- regularly reflect on the sovereign grace of God. And I would encourage you, if you're going through a dry spell right now, where you say, you know, I really am kind of lacking joy in Christ. I'm really not passionate in worship. And you're wanting to know, how, how can I do something to maybe get back to that place? I would encourage you that this is one of those places to give attention to. To reflect on the sovereign grace of God. Because here's what I've, I've realized in my own experience. Few topics can ignite a dispassionate soul towards worship like this topic can. And here's what I mean. I want to encourage you to do the following. Think about, regularly, think about where you would be if not for the grace of God. Think about, regularly, where you would be if not for the grace of God. And regularly, think about where you're headed because of the grace of God. How often do you do that? Rehearse, where would I be if not for the grace of God? And where am I heading because of the grace of God? And think about how you came to saving faith. In this room, People came to saving faith in many different ways. Some of you from a young age. Some of you in, in, in adulthood. Some of you, a, a family member shared with you the gospel. A Sunday school teacher shared with you. A perfect stranger on the street shared with you the gospel. A roommate in college shared with you the gospel. Somebody shared the gospel with you. But listen, was it not God who opened your eyes and caused you to see? Who here, no matter how the gospel came to you, who here is willing to say, oh no, I just one day woke up and decided, you know what, all these years of rebellion, I'm just going to stop. And Jesus is going to be my Savior. I hated Him yesterday, I love Him today. No, all of us, no matter what our story is, we have been saved by the grace of God. And once we consider these questions... We should take time to rejoice. We should take time to rejoice and thank God for His sovereign grace. He is the Lord of the harvest. And that He uses people like us to do His kingdom work. So in a moment, when we scatter, we've gathered, now we're about to scatter, guess what? 
Let us not forget that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest as we go back into our workplaces. He's the Lord of the harvest in our families. He's the Lord of the harvest in our neighborhoods. Church, when we gather, we must constantly celebrate the grace of God. And when we scatter, we must cling to the reality that Jesus is the Lord of the harvest. And He works to accomplish His kingdom work through us. That's the point of Luke chapter 10, verses 1-24. through Jesus is the Lord of the harvest and He is at work. And our response should be one of confidence as we do mission. And we should be people who rejoice. Rejoice in His grace. May God help us to hear this message now and to walk through those doors and to live in light of what we've heard. Let me pray. Oh God, help us now. Help us to take in what we've heard. That it was more than just a text. It was more than just doctrinal truths. What we just heard, Lord. May it be something that we too rejoice in just like the Savior did. And may it stir confidence in us as we carry out the mission in all the places that you are going to send us this week. And may we gather again next Sunday rejoicing in your grace. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.